thank you for that, Pastor Enoch. Um, I appreciate it, but that was a little too much because now, now everybody's going to expect something big, and uh, better to start with lower expectations. Um, but, you know, um, all of that aside, it is truly, you know, I just, I just feel like I'm at home, you know? Like, I come to this church, and, you know, I think many of you know um, I grew up here. First came to this church, well, actually, it was in a different location at that time. I won't tell you what year that was, because then you'll really know my age. But, um, but yeah, I was seven years old when I was, uh, and it, I just saw someone go, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was, and then after a few years, it was next to the hospital. And then we moved over here, and then this is where I grew up. So this is like home for me. This is so awesome for me to be here. Um, and as I thought about, I'm going to go to my home church, you know, what, what, can, I, what can I share? And, um, and so God just really, you know, because I, I, even though I'm not here anymore, I deeply care about this church. I really do. And um, it's so great to see so many young people coming up in this church, like the babies. Like, you're not babies anymore. And you guys are actually doing the worship and up front, that's so awesome. And I thought about, like, what could God want me to share? And as I prayed about it, he just really impressed me to share this thing. And uh, for those of you who are here for Sabbath school, we, we had a part of that, and we want to continue that conversation. And as I talk about this, I want you to know that it is coming from my heart because I care about you. There may be times where you may be challenged to ask yourself some questions, and it may sound like I'm being critical, but it's because I care about you, and I, I want us to all worship God, our creator, in the way that he intended for us to. Um, so as we, as, we, as we talk about this topic, you know, it, I feel this burden to really share this with as many people who are willing to hear it, because I feel like there's this, and I'm going to say this at the risk of sounding a little overly dramatic, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say this. I feel like there's this epidemic that is spreading through many churches. And I don't know if Glendale Church has been infected by this epidemic or not. I don't know what's in your heart. That's strictly between you and God. But, um, but I do feel this way. And if you're wondering whether you're part of this or not, um, again, I don't know. Um, but I think there are a few symptoms you can look for to see if you have been infected. So let me list a few of these symptoms off. Have you ever found yourself saying, oh, after worship at about 12.15, man, I just got nothing out of worship today. You don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> just answer it internally. Or have you ever said, whew, that was boring. By the way, I've said that too. Or have you ever found yourself saying, man, that just was not my style of music. Don't like that kind of music. Way too rocky or way too conservative. Have you ever said, found yourself saying, that sermon? Well, what was he talking about? It said nothing to me. I hope you're not saying that now. 
Or, I don't really like that pastor's style. If you've ever asked yourself something like that or some variation of those kinds of statements, you might be infected by this and part of this epidemic. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have come to the part of worship now after we've praised you and we've sung our hearts out. Man, it was such a blessing. I, I actually stopped singing because I just wanted to hear other voices and just feeding my soul with uh, the passionate singing. And now that we've praised you and, and we've uh, come to you now in worship, this is your time to speak to us now, Father. And I just pray that our eyes, uh, would it be eyes that to see and that our ears, you would give us ears to hear. And most importantly, give us hearts that are ready to be convicted by this message. And I prayed, I prayed in Jesus' name. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. Thank you, John, for reading us our text for today. Exodus chapter 25, and we are looking at verse 8. Exodus 25, verse 8. The word of God says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Isn't that just awesome? All right, I'm not seeing it in most of your eyes. Maybe you don't quite see it. Maybe we need to get into a little bit of this and understand what God is really saying. Maybe we need to understand what he means by this sanctuary that he's asking Moses to build. God is speaking to Moses right now, and he's talking about building this sanctuary so that he could dwell among his people. And maybe some of the blank faces are because we don't quite understand what the sanctuary represents. So let's go through that a little bit. The sanctuary is the earthly sanctuary, which was supposed to be a replica of the heavenly sanctuary. And if you were to read the rest of the verses after chapter 25, and I encourage you to do that maybe this afternoon or sometime this week, you will see that God gives really specific instructions about the sanctuary. Some Bibles will refer to it as the tabernacle. And so God gives us very, very specific instructions. And here's maybe one artist's imagination of what that might have looked like. We don't know for sure, because obviously there were no pictures to, to show, but this may be something of what it looked like based on what the Bible says. And the sanctuary has three main, main components to it. And it looks something like this. Does this have a pointer? Oh, yeah, great. All right. So the first section is called the outer court. And some of you may already know this, but just let's go through it, because we all need reminders, even if you know it. There's the outer court. Then there's what they call the first apartment, and this is called the holy place. Then the third section is called the most holy place. And inside each of these sections are different articles or different items. Okay? And this becomes really, really important. 
The first, and I, by the way, this is uh, the east here, and people would come in from the east, right? And they would come into the entrance into the outer court. And the first thing is what? Altar of burnt offerings, right? This is where people would come. And they, you know this, the Bible describes that they take their animal, right? And they slit the throat of an animal. I know we hate picturing this, right? But they, they kill an animal, often a lamb or other types of animals. And they place that animal onto this altar. And they burn this animal as an offering to God, right? And this represents sin and our need to transfer our sin, right? Because the Israelites back then, they were filled with sin just as we are. And this transfer of sin, by putting their hand on the animal and slitting the throat, they would take that animal, put it on there, and offer it as a sacrifice, right? And this, in many ways, represents who, obviously? Jesus, who was a Lamb of God, right? And so we, in our personal spiritual lives, we are all filled with sin, and so we accept Jesus' blood that he died for us, Right? Then they would come over here to the bronze laver. It's like this big bowl, giant bowl with water, and they would wash their hands. And so if you've been touched by Jesus who died for us, some, the next step for many of us would be to go and wash, representing water. The next step for many of us is baptism, right? Many of us have been baptized by the water. Then the priests would enter into the holy place. And there are three articles in there. There's the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the golden lampstand. And this is very symbolic for us in our personal walk, right? Because if we've accepted Jesus' death on the cross and we choose to be baptized, right? Um, and it, you don't necessarily have to be baptized to, to do this next part, but then you would... What does the Bible say that the bread is symbolic in the Bible? It's the Bible, right? It's his word, right? It tells us that we need to eat of the word of God, right? And so we would spend time in his word, feeding on the bread, right? And then we would also have a desire to do what? Altar of incense, smoke going up in the air. We read his word and we have a desire to pray, right? And then... If we're filled with his word and we're praying, the golden lampstand, light, represents what? We are called to be the light of the world, to go out and witness and share our experience, right? This is a beautiful message, right? This pattern. And then the priest, this part is kind of gross, you know, but the blood that they got from this lamb that you sacrificed, there was a veil here, and they would sprinkle that blood on there. And it would collect over an entire year. Every day they would go in. Can you imagine, right? And then once a year, the high priest, not just any priest, but the high priest would go in behind this curtain into the most holy place. And this is where God's presence was, the Ark of the Covenant. You may have read about this. And I wish I had more time to go into all of this, but I don't. So I'm just going to do an overview. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were three items, including the Ten Commandments were inside there, right? Representing God. And there were the holy angels, uh, statues of them overlooking. So this is kind of represent. So that was a basic kind of sanctuary service back then. And it symbolizes our walk with God, right? 
Well, what's awesome is that is God is telling them to build me this sanctuary. The Israelites did not know it at the time, but they were actually already going through the sanctuary symbolically. Like, you all know the story of the Egyptian, I mean, of the Israelites when they escaped Egypt, right? You all know this story? We have the benefit of the Bible to show us, but they did not even know it, but they were actually going through the sanctuary. Like, let's see how. All right, remember? Moses was called to go and deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. Right before they left, was there a sacrifice? Who remembers what the sacrifice is? Anyone remember? Shout it out. Huh? Firstborn, right? So God was trying to get convinced the Pharaoh over and over. He kept changing his mind. And finally, the last plague was the firstborn was going to die, except who? Except those who got the blood on the doorpost, right? And anyone who had sprinkled blood on the doorpost, the angel would pass over those homes, and that's how we get the Passover, right? So that blood that they were painting was representing Jesus who was going to die for us, right? And that's how they were saved, right? So that was a sacrifice for the Egyptians, I mean for the Israelites. Then they were actually finally able to leave Egypt, And what's the first obstacle they ran into? The Red Sea, right? They get there, they're like, where do we go? And by then, the Pharaoh, he changed his mind, remember? And he's like, he changed his mind once again. He's like, go after them. And he, even after losing his first son, he still, his heart was so hardened. He sends the Egyptian soldiers. They turn around, they see the Egyptian soldiers behind them. They look to their right, they see mountains. They look to their left, they see more mountains. And then in front of them is the Red Sea. And what does God do? He tells Moses, raise your staff. And what happens? The waters part. And the people walk through the water, representing a baptism, right? They went through the water, right? Now check this out, because you all know the story. Then when they got through to the other side and they escaped, how did God sustain them? He sent manna, bread, table of show bread. During the day, how did God lead them? A cloud, altar of incense. At nighttime, by the way, the cloud was not only leading, but it sheltered them from the hot sun. He's such a good God. Then at nighttime, how did he lead them? through a pillar of fire, which visually they were able to see to be led, but also kept them warm at night. Again, such a merciful, gracious God that he is. And then they got to Mount Sinai. And Moses went up to Mount Sinai and got what? The Ten Commandments. You see this? The the Israelites were already going through this pattern of the sanctuary, and they had no idea that they were doing that. And so you see, God was already saving the Israelites through the pattern of the sanctuary. But now, now that he has saved them through the pattern of the sanctuary, now he wants to show them. 
he wants to reveal to them how he is going to now save all of humanity through the plan of salvation. And that's what this uh, plan, uh, the sanctuary represents. How does this represent God's plan of salvation? Let's see it. This is very, very cool. So Jesus actually came through the sanctuary. Let's walk through this. You guys, if, if you don't know, you, you'll, you'll see it as we, as we go through it. So Jesus, before he came down to earth, where was he? In heaven, in whose presence? The Father's presence, right? So Jesus is here, nice and comfortable in heaven with God the Father, right? He leaves heaven to be out of God's presence, and he comes down, and he comes down to be, what does the Bible say Jesus was? A light to the world. To be one who prayed and showed us a life of prayer. The Bible says that he was the bread of life, right? And he also knew his scripture. And then, just before he started his public ministry, what did he do? Come on, you guys know this now, right? What happened? He was baptized, right? Even though he was without sin, right? He knew no sin, yet he was baptized to be an example for us. And after a very short ministry of about three years, what did he do? He died on the cross for us. He was the Lamb of God that was sacrificed to pay for our sins. Now, here's a really important question for you. As Seventh-day Adventists, you got to know this. Did Jesus' ministry end at the cross? No. Why not? Who said no? Okay, why? Okay, that's part of the answer. Many Christians feel, believe that that was it. That was it. It was done and that his ministry was done. The question I have for you is if you believe that, what has Jesus been doing all this time? Hanging out? Praying? Yeah, definitely praying. But let's walk through this. Because Jesus now made his way back through the other way, through the sanctuary. So check this out. He died on the cross to be the sacrifice for us. By the way, for animal lovers, praise the Lord, because we no longer have to sacrifice animals because Jesus died for us, right? My daughters would have a really hard time with that if we had to do it. So Jesus died for us. Then after he died, wait a minute. I thought he was baptized before he died. How can baptism come after he died? What did Austin say? What happened after Jesus died and was resurrected and about to ascend to heaven in the book of Acts? What happened? Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. There was this huge revival. Do you remember? Huge revival where thousands of people were baptized. So I suppose you can tie that in. But there was this revival where there was a baptism not of water, but baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? Then from there, Jesus goes into heaven. 
Jesus is not up there just doing nothing. He is continuing to minister. While the Holy Spirit is working down here on earth, Jesus is up there. And the early church that started, Peter and Paul and all those people who started the early church, that early church started off so great, and then they started to have some problems, didn't they? You guys ever heard the term dark ages? Do you know why they call it the dark ages? Huh? They don't know what? Say it louder. No, say it. I think you got it. They don't know a lot about God? About, yeah, about... So the church was corrupted, and they took away the Bible. There was a time where you did not have access to the Bible, and you had to go to the church in order for the church to tell you what the Bible says. What does the Bible tell us? The Word of God is a what unto our path? A light. If you don't have the Word of God, it's dark. And that's why they call it the dark ages. And so Jesus, what does he do? He's not resting because his ministry is over. His ministry is just getting started. And what does he do? He uses people. He uses churches. He uses people like John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into the common language of the people. And they were actually, they were actually um, what's the word? Yeah, martyred. They're risking their lives to do this, right? Because they were people were actually being killed for this. But people like John Wycliffe, uh, Martin Luther, he translated into the German language. So these people are now taking, and Jesus giving them the conviction to do this and the strength and the courage to do this. He's ministering up in heaven by working through these people to give the bread of life, the word of God, back to the people. Right? Isn't that awesome? Then, after the word of God was made available, there were people like John Calvin. You've heard his name, right? Who founded the Presbyterian movement, the Presbyterian church. They had a huge burden for what do you think? Prayer. That was their thing. And so prayer became this thing where Jesus ministered through the people, through the power of prayer, through the Presbyterian church and other movements. Then people like John Wesley and the Methodist church. We all, you all know that the Seventh-day church is rooted in the Methodist faith, right? right? We came from the Methodist faith. And the Methodists were all about, guess what? being a light, evangelism, witnessing, sharing the story. And that's why the Seventh-day Church, before we became the Seventh-day Church, the Methodist uh, was all about talking about Jesus is coming soon, right? And so God, uh, Jesus is ministering up there, using people like John Wesley and the Methodist faith, faith to focus on witnessing. And then Jesus' ministry is still not over because in 1844... He entered, he's our high priest. Go to the book of Hebrews, and it will show you that Jesus is our high priest. Remember, the high priest is the only one who's able to go in there. Jesus is our high priest, would enter into the most holy place, not here on earth, but the most holy place in heaven. And that is where he has been since 1844, praying for us and interceding for us, right? 
And that is where he is going to be until Jesus, until he comes back. And that's when probation closes. And for those of you who have been studying the book of Revelation for your quarterly, we know that end time, the great, great battle or the great uh, choice that we all have to make will be grounded in guess what? What's in there? The Ten Commandments, right? And the Sabbath, right? And so you see this image of Jesus who came through the sanctuary and then made his way back through the sanctuary. And the reason why I'm explaining all this to you is not just so, I mean, you definitely just need to know this, but for what we're about to talk about today, this visual that you have, you see, God wanted God, I believe, is a very visual God. And he wanted to show visually, not just so we can slaughter animals, but he was trying to show visually the plan of salvation for all of humanity. And he was showing them the sacrifice that was to come. It was a preview of Jesus who was going to come. And so if you imagine the significance of how huge just how huge this, hugely significant this sanctuary was in that context. But before God tells, gives specific instructions on how to build this sanctuary, in the context of this thing being all about salvation, he says a very interesting thing. Before you build it, he says, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Why is that so hugely significant? The Hebrew word for dwell is shakan, which means, in some versions of your Bible, if you uh, have another version, it might say, make me a sanctuary so that I may reside with them or be with them. In other words, he had a desire to permanently be with the Israelites. And he makes this really, really clear before he has them, has them actually make the sanctuary. In other words, you can read this text to mean that God desired to have this reunion one day to save us. But by making the statement, he's declaring, I am the one who is initiating this reunion. I'm the one who's planning it, I'm the one who's, got, who's gonna make it happen, and I'm the one who's gonna execute it and, and, and make sure that it's followed through. He is the one who initiates this reunion. By the way, this should come as no surprise to us if you've forgotten, because the entire Bible, the entire Bible narrative is all about God initiating his reunion with us starting from the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned. God did not wait for Adam and Eve to come crawling back on their hands and knees, right? In Genesis 3, 9, what did he say? He went to them and said, hey, where are you? Isn't that beautiful? Right? It was a rhetorical question because he knew where they were, but he was reaching out to them, Right? And even when God has his faithful 99 sheep sticking close to him, and there's that one lost sheep, what does Luke 15 tell us? He goes after and pursues and searches for that one lost sheep. 
David in the book of Psalm in chapter 139 says, I could never get away from your presence because God is the one always seeking us. Jesus, he showed us, and every Christmas we're reminded of this, and his name was Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And in John chapter 15, 16, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And in Matthew 28, 20, before he left in the Great Commission, he said, I am with you always. And all of this put together makes up the good news, right, that we celebrate, the gospel message that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save us. God is the one who initiates. He is the one who seeks us. He did not say, make me a sanctuary so that you can come crawling back to me on your hands and knees. Do you see the importance of understanding this distinction? No. He said, make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. And this morning, as we talk about worship, I want to ask you, does this concept of a God who initiates worship, is that reflected in your own worship? This morning, for those of us who are here in Sabbath school, we talked about the fivefold pattern of worship. Thank you, James. It was great to do that with you. I'm glad we took the board away because I'm going to test you. Anyone other than James, what was the first phase of the fivefold pattern? I'm just going to leave now because I'm so happy. I'm done. God gathers, right? God initiates, right? God is the one who says, I am your God, and I am calling you. I'm the one who is calling you to worship. This is like evident throughout the Bible. We all know the story of Noah. Just before the waters came, they were supposed to go in. God told them to go inside the water. And do you remember specifically what God said? James, you can answer this one if you know it. Do you know it? He, did he say, go into the ark? Or did he say, come into the ark? He said, come into the ark. Think about the significance of that word, come into the ark. He didn't say, go into the ark and pray that I will be with you. He said, come into the ark. It's kind of like when my kids and I, they're old enough now, they've been on swim teams, so they can swim great. But when they were younger, we'd play around in the pool. And the first time, I remember each of them, the first time they trying to jump in, right? And I would say, yes, come, come into the water, jump. Now, by saying come into the water, what am I implying? Where am I? I'm in the water. If I were to say go into the water, I was probably going to be standing next to him on the outside, and there's no way that they're going to jump in. It's only when I, when I myself am in the water, and I say, come, 
And then they would work up the nerve because they trust me. The first couple of times it was hard, but then they would jump in and I would catch them. And then they would love it, and then they'd want to do it all day. And I'd be like, why did I start that? Because I'm so tired now, right? But it's this concept of calling because I'm the one who's there. And they know they're going to be safe because I'm the one who's calling them. Yet we sometimes forget this concept when we worship. Do you know what I mean? When we forget this concept, it's kind of like going to a friend's birthday party. Last chance to use James as an illustration, so I'm going to use James. So let's say it's James's birthday. When was your birthday? March 7th? Oh, it was really close. All right, so this is perfect. So his birthday just passed. So let's say he, uh, he's like, oh, yeah, it's my birthday, and he's like, He's like, I want you to come to my birthday party. And I was like, okay, awesome. So then I go, I go and I go, go to his house. Let's say it's at your house. And I pretty much like everything I do, I act like it's my party. First of all, I don't bring a gift, right? I decide on what we're going to do at the party, right? Everything I do is kind of like, okay, putting the spotlight on myself. Right? And James is like, um, and he's such a kind guy that he probably wouldn't say anything even if that happened. But let's just pretend for, for a second that he's not as, as, as saintly as he usually is. And he says, Pastor Tony, what are you doing? Like, th- whose party is this anyway? Right? And I even go as far as to say, James, please come to, to the party. James is like so confused. He's like, you want me? You're asking me to come to my own party? Like, what are you talking about? And as silly as that may sound, I feel like we do this all the time in worship. How many times have you said, as you're starting worship, Lord, please be with us? And I feel like God's saying, what? I'm the one who called you to worship, and you're asking me to? I'm already here. I'm the one who called you. I'm the one who gathered you. I'm the one who initiated this worship, and you're asking me to join you at my party? We often approach worship backwards. We try to initiate worship, do all these things, And then we try to get God to respond to what we're doing. And let me just tell you, that is completely backwards. Or worse than that, we try to do something up here and then get you guys sitting in the pews to respond as if I'm up here doing some performance. That's even worse. It may sound like I'm being a stickler here about how we pray, But if we were to just change, because I believe saying things like that, you know, I'm not going to try to like micromanage like how you pray. Prayer is between you and God, and that should be personal. But I'm pointing this out because it, it reflects our attitude or our understanding of what worship is about when we say stuff like that, right? And I, even though God has really been speaking to me about this and really changing me, man, I am just as guilty. Every time I go up and preach, 
I've, God's taken me a long way. I've gotten, he's really helped me with this. But even just a few years ago, I was obsessed with, man, I, I, I hope, man, I hope somebody's convicted, right? Like as if that's my job, right? And I wonder if I'm going to really sound interesting. Are they going to laugh at my jokes, right? Are they going to like, how do I sound up here? And, and what is, you know, how, does, how effective is my sermon? I'm like that guy who goes to somebody else's party and pretends like it's my party, right? You know, one of the traditions that I really, really do not like, and I'm not criticizing this church, but when I was here and I used to preach occasionally for joint worship, the one thing I really was uncomfortable with is after the sermon, we got to march out and we got to stand there and everybody has to come through and whether you like it or not, you got to shake my hand. And I know half of you who said, oh, thank you for the message, were like, I got to say something, so I guess I better say something. I understand there's traditions, but I was really uncomfortable with that part because all of a sudden, I just spoke God's message and now everybody is coming to me and telling me what a great job I did. There are some pastors, as soon as worship is over, they sneak out and they go to their office for a good 20, 30 minutes so that people can forget. And then he'll come to potluck or whatever so that the focus is not on him. We've got to make these changes because it makes a difference. Or when I used to do praise up here, Pastor Enoch and I were talking about the glory days when I was up here with the guitar and he would sing and you know, we used to do praise and that was so much fun. But I look back at the, those days, I am so ashamed because all I was thinking about was, man, how does my guitar sound? right? Are people singing, right? Are they being passionate, right? And I'm like, wrong focus. And for those of you who only sit in the pews and you're never up here, this applies to you too, right? Because how you, this is not a performance that you guys are here to be entertained. God has called you to worship in the pews, Right? And oftentimes, those people who are calm and are not up front, the focus, and I've done this too, I'm sitting in the pews and I'm listening to a sermon and I'm worshiping and I'm wondering, man, all right, I'm not feeling anything. Where's my experience, right? Let me tell you, your focus is again, is on you. Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, writes this, and this hits it on the head, on the nail, or whatever the saying is. He says, the most common mistake Christians make in worship today is seeking an experience rather than seeking God. Worship is not a therapy session. Now, if worship results in therapy and you're healed, that's great. But that's not your goal of worship. It is only because God is able to come down and heal you. That's an end result. God will use our emotions to reach us. There's no doubt about it, because I believe God himself is an emotional God, and he uses his emotions. But an emotional experience is not our objective of worship. It's only good if it's the end result of worship. 
Worship is about encountering God. It's about seeking him and encountering him. It's not about you or me. I read this very funny but very compelling quote. And these days you read stuff online. I don't even know if it's true, but somebody put it up. It's supposedly a conversation that took place between Francis Chan and one of his members. You guys know who Francis Chan is? He's an author. He's a pastor, highly influential. And the conversation went something like this after worship. Random churchgoer goes, man, I didn't really like worship today. And Francis Chan said, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. It's kind of funny, but I think it applies to a lot of us. So here's a question for you this morning. How much does self get in the way of your worship? You know, in some ways, it's not entirely our fault. We were conditioned by our parents. And I'm not blaming their parents either. Our parents love us. They do such a good job. But when you were babies, and for some of you that was not that long ago, for others it was a long time ago, they put us on the stage during worship, and we would sing songs, and we were like, oh, so cute. And start taking pictures and clapping, and oh, you did such a good job. And that's how we were conditioned. Then we grow up, then we have our own babies, and we turn around and do the same thing. Get our kids up there, except now it's on our phones. So we just pull out our phones, and it's comical. There's like more phones watching than people watching, and they're recording their kids. Oh, so cute. And afterwards, they show it instant gratification. This was you. Oh, you were so cute. And we become conditioned to thinking that worship is all about us. Brothers and sisters, it is time for us to get reconditioned when it comes to worship. I want to end with a story about someone you know very, very well. You may not know you know him, but you do. His name is Matt Redman. You all know his name? If you don't know his name, you've sung his songs. We just sang one today, 10,000 Reasons. He's probably written more Christian songs than anyone. Blessed Be Your Name, another one. But probably the one song that he's most well-known for is, guess what? Anyone know? Heart of Worship is what he wrote. That's his song. And there's a story behind this song. I read one of his books and what happened was his church, and this is when he was younger, much younger, the church that he was at was just booming. And people were just coming. It was growing. Nothing wrong with that. Praise the Lord for that, right? But he realized the reason people were coming was the music was just so good. And so what they did was they started to like really, really focus on the music. They even get to the point where they were like hiring professional musicians, right? And so the music was just awesome. And people kept coming and coming. And praise the Lord that Matt Redmond's pastor was a godly man. And God convicted him to say, you need to reevaluate. You need to look at what's happening. And the pastor was so convicted by this. He said, 
This is what we're going to do. No more instruments. Oh, Pastor Tim would have a heart attack. No more instruments. No guitars, no drums, no bass. And they're like, well, what are we going to do? We're going to sing hymns. And just a cappella. And at first they're like, this is crazy. I mean, this is like why we're growing. So they tried it. They listened to their pastor. They were a good church. And they started singing with no, uh, no instrument accompaniment. And at first he said it was weird. It was awkward. But then the Holy Spirit started to convict them. And they realized we were worshiping music, not God. That's why the lyrics, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, those words are actually the story behind it. They literally stripped away, right, everything, and they simply came to meet their God. For Matt Redman and his church at that time, music was what it was about. And that was what they needed to address. But you know what? It can be anything other than music. It could be anything that takes the place of God in your worship. It could be your obsession with your job and you're thinking about your job. It could be with your children. It could be a number of things. It could be your own desire to experience something. Or it could be your self-glorification of wanting to be seen as someone It could be lots of different things, anything that makes us forget that God is the one calling us to worship him. God is the one who initiated you even being here. And if you think you're here because you decided to come, I'm afraid you're mistaken. At least that's my belief. You're here because you have responded to his conviction to come. So I started the message today with some symptoms. I just don't get anything out of worship. I find it boring. That's not my kind of music. A sermon, man, that did nothing for me. I really don't like that pastor speaking style. What do all of these things have in common? I just don't get anything out of worship. I find it boring. It's not my kind of music. The sermon just didn't speak to me. I don't, I don't like the pastor's sermon style. The focus, oftentimes, whether we want to admit it or not, is on us. So one last question as I end. Having God spoken, spoke to us now about this, what is the heart of worship for you. What is the heart of worship for you? Is it about you? Or is it about God? I want to end on a really happy note because this is like the most awesome news. Like if you're feeling bad about yourself, like, oh yeah, I'm kind of selfish. I, yeah, I guess this is such great news. In the very same way that we can do nothing to earn our salvation, it is only through Christ 
there's really not a whole lot that we need to stress about in terms of worshiping God because we're not the ones who initiated it anyway. Isn't that good news that we don't have to come to church thinking, I got to make worship like something and I got to do something in order to make it meaningful? Because God is the one who initiated. He's the one who initiated the plan of salvation. And in the same way, he's the one who initiates worship. He said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Thank you.